First Thessalonians five twenty three twenty four. May the God of peace Himself sanctify you wholly, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. He will do it. That's the conclusion of the message. He will do it. Question, how do you have the assurance of salvation if holiness of life is required in order to get to heaven? Vast portions of the American church attain assurance by making holiness optional. We're talking vast portions of the church with articulate spokesmen and numerous books. Secure assurance by making the necessity of holiness non-existent. That's the way you get assurance. You teach that holiness is not necessary so that if, if a person does not have a holy life, he may still have assurance that he is saved. And you articulate an elaborate way of defending assurance minus holiness. Now, I do not mean that they simply deny that you need perfection in order to get to heaven. I deny that. You deny that. Everybody with a modicum of biblical sense denies that you need to be a perfect person to get to heaven. A sinless person. They go beyond that and say, if you say that the Bible requires any level of repentance, any level of righteousness, any level of holy living, any level of purity, three terrible things happen. Number one, grace is nullified if you say that there has to be some holiness to get to heaven. Number two, justification by faith alone is contradicted and ruined. And number three, assurance is destroyed. Therefore, they don't believe that um, holiness is required. Any measure of holiness. Now, my, my purpose this morning is to say a, an emphatic no to all three of those statements and to give an alternative ground for why I think holiness is required and assurance is possible. Gloriously possible. The Bible wants you to be full of the assurance of hope to the end. Like I said last week, not waking up in the morning wondering if you're a Christian. Not going to bed at night worried that you haven't made it into the kingdom. The Bible says you can know if you have eternal life and you can live this life with confidence that you're going to make it to glory. My point this morning is you don't need to make holiness optional in order to attain that. You, you dare not. You'll be unbiblical if you do. Number one, the necessity of holy living 
does not nullify grace. I just want to answer each of these three things. First, the necessity of holy living does not nullify grace for two reasons at least. Number one, I said last week, I'll say it again before I'm done this morning, holy living is based on as a solid rock granite foundation the grace of pardon. No pardon, no chance of holiness. Number two, grace is not only pardon, it's power. And when I affirm that the transformation of life degree by degree into conformity to Christ is necessary, all I'm doing is saying that grace is necessary. How can you nullify grace by saying it's necessary? The text from which I'm getting that is 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain, but I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, don't misunderstand me, nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God which is with me. Now, when I agree with that, when I agree with that and say, that's necessary, that experience of grace is necessary, how can I nullify grace by saying grace is necessary? So I emphatically deny that the statement that holiness, the transformation by the power of God's grace is necessary, nullifies grace. It demonstrates grace. It rests on the grace of pardon. It demonstrates the grace of power. We'll come back to that. Number two, the necessity of holy living does not contradict justification by faith alone. This is very important. Not easy to grasp. That's why I said it'll be simpler next Sunday. I said last week, no, three weeks ago on justification... I said, do not reverse the order in time or logic of justification and sanctification. That is, the being forgiven of all your sins and the reckoning of Christ's righteousness to you and your progressive development in holiness. If you try to reverse those and say, oh, I've got to do some holy things here so that I can get forgiven. Or do some holy things here so that I can get myself uh, imputed with Christ's righteousness. If you reverse it like that, you'll go down the tubes into legalism or despair. Now, I'm going to say the radical thing I said three weeks ago, because some people are going to walk out of here this morning saying, I don't believe this. So I'm going to say it clear, clear, clear on the tape, on the tape, clear. I believe that the doctrine of justification taught in the Bible means that everybody who belongs to Jesus is forgiven every sin they have or ever will commit forever, once for all, through the blood of Jesus. Here's the way I put it. I tried a new sentence out on you. I said, the only sins against which you can successfully strive in the pursuit of holiness are forgiven sins. Remember that one? I still believe it three weeks later. The only sins you can successfully make any headway in overcoming 
are forgiven sins. Because if you try to reverse it and do the striving before the forgiving, before the you being forgiven, you got two possibilities. You will despair because you won't succeed, or you'll become self-righteous because you think you are succeeding. The Pharisees had an outward success in that. Inwardly, they were ravenous wolves and dead men's bones and became hypocrites and self-righteous because of it. Justification, the forgiveness of all my sins, is my only hope of making headway in sanctification. But nothing that I have said, now this is where people have a hard time, nothing that I have said so far implies that sanctification is not necessary. Because, now here we, here we get the because and the explanation. Because the faith that justifies also has a dynamic in it which infallibly always sanctifies. Now why is that? It's for this reason. Faith is not signing a card. Faith is not merely praying for Jesus to come into your heart. Faith is not making a decision that Jesus is the one who died for sinners. That's the, that's a piece of faith. Faith is being satisfied. Oh look, coming down right here. I thought one would pop at the appropriate moment. Well, you just catch them as they come down and we'll see what the Lord does with that. Now, where was I? The reason faith, the reason that faith also sanctifies is this. Faith has the dynamic of satisfying the heart. Faith is, I think I could demonstrate from Scripture that faith is a being satisfied with all that God is for you in Jesus. Faith is a being satisfied with all that God is for you in Jesus. Now, you know what that, that effect has on, on uh, sin? Sin makes headway in your life precisely through commending its satisfactions to you. You're all looking at that balloon too much. I don't like it. Look at me. Look at me. I won't be able to preach if you look at that balloon. Now, this is the hardest point. Wouldn't you know it would come down to the hardest point? I'll say it one more time, then I'm going to leave it. The reason justifying faith makes you holy, and I don't mean perfect, just progressive likeness to Jesus. The reason it does is because it's a being satisfied with Jesus. And when you're satisfied with Jesus, you're weaned away from the satisfactions that sin offers you. That's the reason. Now that's why it's infallible. There's an infallible connection there. It always happens. Third, the necessity of holy living does not destroy assurance. Now, here's the way the human mind reasons. I've read, I've read this in books of evangelicals. It says, wait a minute, if, if, if you say that some measure of holiness, some measure of Christ-likeness, some measure of repentance and purity and goodness 
righteousness is required. And you can't tell me exactly what precise level and how many times a day and how strong the feelings need to be and how many days then you leave me in a total void of ambiguity and I can never know whether I've got enough of this stuff called holiness to have assurance. And therefore, we cannot have any necessity of any level of assurance because I never can know if I've got that level or not because you won't define it for me. That is human reasoning that the Bible never engages in. The Bible has another angle on this entirely as to how it is that when holiness is required, according to Hebrews 12:14, there is a holiness without which we will not see the Lord. Nevertheless, assurance is possible. And that's what my whole message is developing into this morning. If you are wondering whether or not holiness really is necessary, this is a um, off-print of the appendix to the pleasures of God. A man in Florida read this and got so excited about it, he made 30,000 of these. And he's, he, I mean, he's given away 30,000. And he sent me 2,000 of them. And uh, I, I just want to make them available. This, this is about the so-called Lordship Salvation, which I believe in. And the, the explanation for why I think holiness is taught as necessary and how it is that that can fit together with justification by faith alone and how it fits together with assurance. And they're on a table right out there. And, and uh, I just if they're gone, I've got boxes more upstairs. I just look back there and see like the piles are low. So I will make them available. So feel free to take one. And then if they're useful to you for others, you can come back on other weeks and we'll make the, more of them available. Today's sermon is an effort to show where assurance comes from in the light of the necessity of holiness. Let's go to the text. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. I want you to see three things, two briefly, one more extended. First, Paul in verses 14 to 22, which Jim did not read, I didn't put in the text, are a list of commandments or exhortations of things we should do. Things like don't return evil for evil and pray and uh, don't despise prophesy and don't quench the spirit. And the last one in verse 22 is abstain from every form of evil. Now, what he's doing then is saying, be holy, be sanctified, be good people, be pure, be upright, be honest, be loving, be that way. So my first conclusion is, when I argue that God sanctifies, which I'm going to argue from verse 24, that God sanctifies, he does it by means of commandments. So don't ever say... Well, he's commanding me to do things, and therefore I am the one who has to do it, and therefore it's not sure. Don't conclude that. He uses commandments. Number two, verse 23. He shifts from asking God to make us holy. He shifts from commanding God or commanding us to be holy, to asking God to make us holy. Let's read it. May the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly, 
And may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice, in verses 14 to 22, he looked at me and he said, Piper, do some things. Be a certain way. He engaged my mind. He appealed to my motives. He involved my will. He didn't circumvent all that and just subconsciously work in my heart and do it. Now, secondly, he looks up to God and he says, now, God, you do it. See that? God of peace, you sanctify them holy. So he just told them to be holy. And now he looks up to God and says, now, I just told them to be holy. But if you don't do now what I'm asking you to do, they're going to be either legalists or they're going to be despairing. You've got to do it. So don't ever pit those against each other. Don't ever say that when the Bible commands a person to do something, that doesn't mean God does it. Philippians 2.13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who is already at work in you to will and to do his good purpose. Your willing is based on his willing. Your obedience to commandments is based on God's answer to Paul's prayer. And then thirdly, we move from the commandment to the prayer to the promise in verse 24. He who called you is faithful and he will do it. Now there's the main point. God will do it. God will do what? He'll do verse 23. He'll do the prayer. He'll do verses 14 to 22. He'll do it. Now, where is, your, where is your assurance grounded then? It's grounded squarely on the promise, He will do it. Not whether you can do it. And, and my whole focus in these past weeks has been to say to people who say to me, I, I don't know if I have sufficient holiness. When I look inside, I don't see what I think is enough. And my point is, probably you will never see enough if you just look inside. The only thing I know to say about this miracle called assurance is look to the promise. Look to the sufficiency of the cross. Look to election. Look to predestination. Look to the atonement. Look to the call. Look to the promise of sanctification. Look, look, look. Spurgeon told the story of his own conversion. He walked into a little Methodist church when he was 16 years old and a lay preacher was there preaching because the preacher couldn't come because of the snow and the preacher, all he had was the text, look to Christ, look to Christ. And that's all he said for 10 minutes. Look to Christ. And Spurgeon was granted at that moment to look to Christ. And he was saved forever. So all I know to do in these weeks, for those of you who struggle with assurance to say, look, look at this provision, meditate on this salvation, ask the Lord to open your eyes like he did the heart of Lydia to give heed to these glorious things. The human reasoning that I spoke of earlier goes like this. Well, he's commanding us to do it. And since we can't be counted on to do it, therefore it may not get done. And therefore we can't have assurance if it's required. Or 
the reasoning goes like this. He's praying that it will be done, that I would become holy. I know God doesn't always answer Paul's prayers. He says that elsewhere. And therefore, he may not answer this one for the church and for me. And therefore, it's not sure that I'll become holy like he's praying that I'll be holy. And therefore, if this holiness is necessary, I can't have any assurance. That's human reasoning that is not biblical. It simply ignores biblical texts and spins it out in your own head. That's one of the reasons we have vast misunderstandings in the church. We take biblical texts and instead of reading them in context, seeing how they help each other, we, we walk away, we stop at verse 23, and we walk away and say, there's no way we could have any assurance in this way of thinking. Instead of reading verse 24, which says, He who calls you is faithful, he will do it. Now, what's the it? What's the it? The it is verse 23. Sanctification. Keeping to the day of Christ. He'll do it. When I struggle with assurance in recent days, I've discovered all anew the battle strategy. To go to a verse like this and to say it to myself over and over again. It is not primarily begotten by my self-analysis in analyzing the relative degrees of my advancement in holiness. It is by focusing on the promise of God rooted in His faithfulness and say, He'll do it. He'll do it. Do I believe that promise or not? I believe it. And therefore, it will happen. There will be enough holiness for me to hear Jesus say, Well done. Good and faithful, sinful servant. Now here's a question. When you read verse 23, if you're like me, you start to worry a little bit. Well, wait a minute. Might that verse that prays for sanctification, may the God of peace sanctify you holy, and that prays for keeping in blamelessness and wholeness under the day of Christ or on the day of Christ, might that not mean what he's really praying for is that when Jesus comes, he'll do what needs to be done at that moment in the twinkling of an eye and fit me for entering heaven. It has nothing to do with the process of my life. Is that what he means? Or is he praying that God would work on me, beginning with my conversion, and step by step, fit me for the kingdom so that I'm ready to meet Jesus. And though I'm a sinner, needing forgiveness every day of my life, there will be that measure of holiness which will demonstrate the validity of my faith and cause me to be welcomed into heaven. Which of those is, is meant in verse 23? Crucial question. My answer is the second one is meant... The reason is not only that sanctification generally means a progressive likeness to Christ, but here's another one. If you want to look at it with me, turn back two chapters to chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. I love this parallel. I love this text. And I think what this text shows is that the prayer that Paul is praying in 523 is not just a prayer that I would be changed in the twinkling of an eye at the coming of Jesus, but that I would be changed progressively now and made ready for the coming of Jesus. So that, as John said, I would not be ashamed of him at his coming. Starting at verse 12 in chapter 3, he prays like this. May the Lord make you. Now, that's new covenant sovereign power. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another. Now, 
Now. He's talking now. Make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all men as we do to you. So that. Now here's the connection with the end result. So that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's the same phrase at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And those two words, unblameable or blameless and holiness, those are the words that Paul's praying for in chapter 5, verse 23. Therefore, since... God's making us step by step more and more loving is the means by which we are fitted to be received by the Lord at the end. I conclude that the prayer in 523 is a prayer for present sanctification, present likeness to Jesus, present growth in grace, because love is the essence of holiness, I would argue. So what Paul is saying here is... Lord, I ask that you do it. I ask that you would make the people holy. And then he comes and he says, you will do it. He who calls you is faithful. Verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Now, here's another question I have. Well, I don't. I'm just going to role play with Paul here for a minute. Paul, I don't get it. I mean, you say he who called you is faithful. He'll sanctify you. Get it? Piper? I said, hmm. Called. He's faithful. He'll sanctify you. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. What's the connection? I mean, why is it that your faithfulness guarantees that your call will produce sanctification? Or why is it that your call, together with your faithfulness, secures the certainty that you'll sanctify me. I don't get it. And and I think he, if I said that to Paul, he'd add this little piece. He said, what you're missing is my call that you talked about last Sunday. My call is a call to holiness. In fact, it's not just an invitation to holiness. It's my commitment to gather a holy people. He who called you is faithful. He will do it because he's faithful and because his call includes the commitment to sanctify. Chapter 4, verse 7. God has not called you for uncleanness, but in holiness. 2 Timothy 1.9. God called you with a holy calling. Since the call is to holiness... The faithfulness guarantees the effect of the call. Therefore, your sanctification is rooted in and guaranteed by your call. Now, I hope you see what's happening here. Over these six weeks together, what we've been noticing, and it's real clear in verse 24 this morning, that every new work of God to save you is rooted in and guaranteed by the work that went before. Today, we see from verse 24 that sanctification, the it, he will do it, is rooted in the call, which last week we said was rooted in the design of the atonement for God's people, which we said was rooted in his predestination, which we said was rooted in his election. And therefore, your sanctification is as sure as your call was sure. 
And your call was as sure as the design of Jesus Christ to make for himself a holy people. And that was as sure as the destination of God before the foundation of the world. For his people to be like Jesus. And that was as sure as the fact that he chose you for his own. What we are doing here is building blocks in the foundation of assurance. Every block is more assured than the one that went before because it has more commitment, more foundation behind it. And not only that, let me close with this observation. The aim of God in your election before the foundation of the world was your holiness. Ephesians 1.4 He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless before Him in love. He chose you to be holy. And not only that, the aim of God in your predestination was your holiness. Romans 8.29 Those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's why you were predestined. Conformity to Jesus was the goal of it all. Not only that, the death of Jesus in fulfillment of all that destiny was precisely to make a holy people. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to sanctify her. The design of the atonement is a holy people. Your holiness is as sure as the omnipotent, invincible purpose of God in the death of His infinitely worthy Son. To call into question verse 24, that God will sanctify you, is to call into question the worth of Jesus Christ and His blood. So we can go to verse 24 on the basis of all we've seen and not only say he who called you is faithful he will do it but he who elected you is faithful therefore he will do it he who predestined you is faithful therefore he will do it he who died for you is faithful therefore he will do it because every one of those divine works of God aimed at your holiness God would not be God if he did not make his people holy He'd be a liar. The ground of assurance, brothers and sisters, is not making holiness optional. It is recognizing the faithfulness of Almighty God. He stands by His electing purposes. He stands by His destining purposes. He stands by the purposes of His dying Son. He stands by the purposes of His holy calling. He stands by his love, which is from all eternity. I hope you feel yourself caught up into the circle of salvation. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. And if you wonder, why didn't it say, those whom he justified, he sanctified. And those whom he sanctified, he glorified. The answer is, he did say it. In verse 29, which I left out, so I'll go back and say it again. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's where sanctification is in the chain. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. I invite you into this grand and glorious 
circle. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, and I close with this, He chose you before the foundation of the world to be saved through sanctification. He chose you to be saved through sanctification. Therefore, biblically, I will not join the chorus of those who say to have the assurance to get from here to here is to make this optional. The Bible says God chose to save people through sanctification and only through sanctification. The ground of assurance is not making holiness optional. It's making God God. It's making God faithful. It's seeing verse 24 and saying, that's my only hope. God who called me is faithful. He will sanctify me. However I look to myself now, however slow I am proceeding in sanctification, He will do it. My confidence is not in myself. My confidence is not in the mirror. My confidence is not in people's feedback. My confidence is in 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. God is faithful. He will do it no matter what anybody says. Let's pray. Almighty God and faithful Savior, I praise you. I love you. My only hope is that you, Father, will fulfill all the purposes that are invincible in Christ Jesus. Your electing purposes for my holiness. Your predestining purposes for my holiness. The death of your son's purposes for my holiness. Your calling's purposes for my holiness. And this glorious grand promise. He who called is faithful. He will do it. Just as you brought the balloons down, Father, send your spirit down. Draw the people who are on the outside into the circle. Please, grant the gift, Father. The free, wonderful testimony of the Holy Spirit. I am believing. I do cast myself on the all-sufficiency of Jesus and His faithfulness. In His name I pray. Amen.